لم تدارك منك Please to say the Honourable Sheikh Asra Rashidi joining us live from Birmingham. He'll be staying with us for the full 90 minutes. We're really honoured to have him. Uh, Sheikh, Salaam Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome uh, back to the programme. Uh, great to have you, sir. Wa alaikum salam, Shafiq. I, I hope you are well. I'm good, thank you, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, what's your initial reaction? How do you summarise what is happening in Palestine and in Israel? Well, uh, the events being cited as being the 9-11 of Israel is a false pretense to assimilate, uh, to make a similarity or false comparison between the events of 9-11 and October the 7th. This uh, comparison is a wrong comparison because if native Indians had hijacked planes uh, or carried out such an attack in on the American US soil, native Indians, and killed US soldiers and took some US civilians as captives, then there can be some type of scope to make a similarity between uh, what occurs in America and what occurs in Palestine. But what we saw on October the 7th is a result of Israeli policy within the occupied land. So Palestine is an occupied land mm. and the occupier has a violent policy placing millions behind a barricade in the largest concentration camp on earth. Not an open air prison, the largest concentration camp on earth, which has led to the events of October the 7th. So October the 7th cannot be singled out as an isolated violent event, which was carried out by a specific group. It should be viewed in the context of a historical narrative of what has occurred in occupied Palestine post-Ottoman Caliphate. From the British mandate in, from 1917 until the British left, they announced their leaving in 1947 and then they formally left in, in 1948. And then we know that the state of Israel was formally announced in 1948, in May 1948. The policies carried out by the Zionist uh, movement from the early 1900s into 1948 and the displacement of over 800,000 Palestinians from their homes and the two-year war between the Arabs, the indigenous population of that land, and the migrant Israeli uh, population, migrants from Europe and from America and from Russia and other parts of the world. There was a two-year war between in, in 19, uh, yeah. 1948. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously 1,400 Israelis killed on October the 7th. Is that, do you condemn that? Do you condemn the innocent life that was lost on the Israeli side? Well, there, there are, has not been a single uh, detailed report on uh, at whose hands did those people living in those kibbutz, in those illegal settlements, by the way, it should be noted those settlements are illegal, that who, who carried out heavy bombardment of those kibbutz, those Israeli civilians that illegal occupiers, illegal settlers living in illegal homes, who 
who carried out those heavy bombard mm. bombardments of those uh, kibbutz, those settlements? Was it the Hamas fighters or was it the Israeli tanks targeting Hamas fighters with total disregard for their own citizens? There has not been a, a scientifically accurate report with regard to what actually occurred on the 7th of October. And we cannot rely on uh, the state of Israel and its media reports when they bomb a hospital, they deny the bombing of the hospital and they claim the, uh, uh, Al-Jihad or another network, uh, militant network actually bombed a Palestinian hospital when we know very clearly that it was the Israeli military that carried out that bombing of a hospital. So they are totally trust, untrustworthy in terms of what actually goes on the ground. Similarly, this idea of that everyone must condemn a specific attack, meaning every Muslim should condemn a specific uh, act by a specific group, this uh, goes against common sense because no one really asks the chief rabbi of the UK, do you condemn the IDF and the killing of over 5,000 children in Gaza? No one asks, do you condemn the killing of 10,000 civilians uh, in Gaza from the chief rabbi? And to ask yeah. every cleric or every Muslim, do you condemn what occurred on 7th October is a, is a fallacy. It's a, it's a media cop-out. Okay. And, and so what does Islam say about protecting innocent life and non-combatants? Well, uh, we know very clearly Islam uh, condemns the killing of non-combatants. And uh, the resistance movement, actually, when they returned back some of the elderly women, they, re they mentioned that those resistance fighters were actually treating them very humanely. They uh, fed them, they clothed them, they ate the same type of food. They even cleaned the toilets for them. Those are the reports I've seen on Israeli media. So uh, we are being told that these resistance groups are animals. The, uh, the politicians in Israel have described them as being animals, but the captives themselves have not described them as being animals. They've described them as being very civilized people. So why should we trust a media that uh, all of a sudden the white helmets become civilized and we, in Syria or, uh, there is a different type of reporting from Western media. And when it comes to Ukraine, there is a different type of uh, reporting. And when it comes to Gaza or Palestine, we have a twist on resistance uh, militias with regard to their motives and whether they are conducting themselves according to Islamic law or not. Yeah. In fact, there are videos of them stopping their fighters from mutilating the bodies because in Islam it's prohibited to mutilate the dead bodies of uh, soldiers who have been killed in war. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask, we've got about 90 seconds before our first break, and let me ask you this one question. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that they are fighting terrorism and it is a war in which they will destroy Hamas. How do you react to that, the sort of rhetoric that we are seeing from Israeli politicians, backed up by Western uh, leaders as well. Uh, what's your reaction to that? That rhetoric is uh, an old rhetoric utilized in the 80s and even in the Intifada in the 1980s. They referred to young boys, young children throwing stones as being terrorists. Now those young boys have grown up, uh, they are carrying guns, they still refer to them as terrorists. So irrelevant to whether Hamas is there or not, a Palestinian resistance will always be referred to as a terrorist resistance by Benjamin Netanyahu and his Western allies, which includes most vociferously uh, France with its uh, colonial history okay. and its uh, 
violent history. Okay, we're going to pause there because we need to take a break. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to Questions with me, Mohammed Shafiq, exclusively here on British Muslim TV. Our special guest tonight uh, is His Excellency, um, the Honorable Sheikh Asra Rashid. Well, uh, Sheikh Asra Rashid, I mean, there is a real concern. Um, let's just get your reaction. We, we, we talked about the violence in Israel and Palestine. I've been to Gaza two times. So I know these communities, I know these people, they're, they're one of the most hospitable people amongst the Arab communities. We've seen 5,000 children being killed. How can we even begin to explain this to our own children and our own community, what, what we've seen on the screens? Well, uh, what's happening is that the Palestinians are being designated or have been designated through their historical account when you look at media accounts from the 1980s and onwards, and prior to that, uh, they are being treated as unpeople. And this is not peculiar to Palestine. We've seen this with the Rohingya and uh, other groups throughout the world, meaning wherever there is oppression, uh, whether Muslims or non-Muslims being oppressed, uh, people are treated uh, unhumanely. This happened to the Jewish community in Europe. The Jewish community faced uh, hostility uh, under Nazi rule, but even prior to Nazi rule, in 1905, Britain had the Aliens Act. In fact, the Aliens Act was uh, done under Balfour, Arthur Balfour, uh, in order to avoid Jewish migrants running away from persecution in Russia. So there has always been a persecution of various groups. It's only very sad when we see that the persecution is happening at the hands of those, uh, the descendants of those who survived Auschwitz or those people who survived the Holocaust, their descendants are carrying out something similar now in Palestine. And the media and those who support the media, government outlets, uh, people within the mainstream parties, conservatives and labor, they have dehumanized Muslims in the past. It happened during the Iraq war. It happened in, during, in 2003 when Iraq was invaded in April. Remember, many of the younger generation are unable to know these accounts because so much time has passed. It happened uh, during the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, it's happened in South America with uh, American foreign policy in South America with communities. They, the, they dehumanize the victims by just mentioning figures that this many thousand children have died today as if to say those children have no names, mm. as if to say those families have no names. So this is a, a, a continuous methodology of corporate media that we see on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, Ibrahim, Saab is in, um, Ibrahim Saab is on Twitter, uh, Honorable Sheikh. He says um, the Sheikh is absolutely right, but he's also, isn't it right, that there are many Holocaust survivors um, and they're... And they're their descendants who are also supporting Palestine, because we've seen so many uh, people on the protests and the rallies. Yes, so there is a large segment of the Jewish community that opposes the illegal occupation of the Zionist entity known as Israel. In fact, some of the vocal people against Israel today, like Noam Chomsky, uh, Ian Papp, others, so many intellectuals, uh, Finkelstein, they are very vocal with regard to the illegal occupation. And Jewish people who are not Zionists are in fact our allies and our friends. And this is how we should view the Jewish community. There are many vocal individuals within the Jewish community who do not support violence and aggression 
against the occupied people. Uh, Sheikh, uh, there's a question around uh, the right natural resources, gas, you know, petrol, this sort of bigger uh, campaign. What, what would you say about that? Uh, whether there is a nefarious uh, agenda for natural resources within Gaza Strip, that's to be determined. Um, people have mentioned that there is an agenda to attain the natural resources within that region. But what we know very explicitly is that uh, from the founder of Zionism, Theodor Herzl, within his private diaries in 1895, in fact, two years prior, prior to the, uh, the official founding of Zionism, he mentions uh, the displacement of the indigenous Arabs from the land. So displacement of the Palestinians from Palestine is a Zionist policy. And that is the main policy being carried out today. So bombing the north of Gaza in order to displace people from the north to the south, giving the Israeli military, giving wrong information to the civilians uh, in order to displace them, to make Gaza an entire ghost town, and then to displace the people, to force a, a, a migration, ethnic cleansing of uh, the Palestinians. So they are forced to leave Gaza. And this is why the Egyptians are being pressured to open the Rafah crossing. Uh, the Israeli authorities would love to displace the, the Palestinians in the West Bank also. So currently, as we speak, the, the Palestinians in Jerusalem are cut off from the Palestinians in the West Bank. The West Bank uh, and uh, Jerusalem is 48 miles away from Gaza. And then from Janine, the Palestinians in Janine are cut off from Ramallah. So Ramallah, Janine, uh, the West Bank and Jerusalem, all of these segments of Palestine are cut off. All the P Palestinian population is cut off from one another. And similarly, the people in Gaza are cut off from the rest of Palestine and the rest of the world. And the forceful bombing that is occurring in front of us, this is in order to force the Palestinians to leave, to replicate what happened in 1948, which was known as the Nakba, when the Palestinians uh, left en masse over 800,000 of them because of the killings that occurred at the hands of what later became known as the IDF, which in reality is IOF, because it's Israeli occupation forces as opposed to Israeli defense force. Okay, and that's a big distinction we'd like to make. A uh, couple of more minutes before our break, and you've said in the past that Muslims cannot be anti-Jew and should be against anti-Semitism. Can you just elaborate on this briefly? You see, we cannot be anti-Jew because uh, inherently we cannot be against any race, any ethnic group. We as Muslims uh, are made up of so many various ethnic groups to the point that the Prophet ﷺ married a woman who would be referred to as Jewish today, who was Safiya, which Muslims refer to as Ummul Mu'mineen, the mother of the believers. So ethnically, we cannot be against Jews. As an ethnic group, as a racial group, there is no such thing as xenophobia towards them. We eat their food, we uh, interact with them, we even marry uh, amongst them, meaning uh, Muslim men are permitted to marry, marry yeah. uh, Jewish women. But in terms of uh, being uh, anti-Semitic, uh, that cannot apply to Muslims as well, because uh, the Arabs are a Semitic people. So being anti-Semitic would be to be anti-Arab, even though Benjamin Netanyahu himself is actually Ashkenazi 
Jewish, which is not Semitic, if, genetically speaking. But we cannot be anti-Jewish in that sense. We are anti-Zionism, which calls for a colonial project to displace the indigenous people from their okay. land and displace them and then occupy the land and make a, s a settlement similar to what happened in Canada, in the USA. That, we're just going to have to... Um, Australia. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Sheikh, I just want to pick that sort of third question up. Uh, lots of comments. Uh, brother uh, is asking, uh, how can we engage the mosque without causing fitna? Uh, one of the challenges we're having in grassroots level is the youth feeling disengaged from the mosque and the sense that younger generation of Muslims feel like there is no safe place to channel their frustration and anger as the mosque have not provided a safe space and colleges or schools. What's the responsibility of imams here in the UK? The responsibility would be to abandon quietism. So quietism uh, and a passive, a, a passive approach to uh, domestic issues, to international politics, this needs to be abandoned. We need to be vocal in our opposition to oppression anywhere in the world, but more specifically with regard to uh, Palestine and Gaza as the current uh, status quo demands from us. So we need to abandon quietism. I wanted to, uh, your fourth questioner, he mentioned with regard to Benjamin Netanyahu yeah. quoting the Torah to validate his violence. And this was not reported in the media outlets, as he mentioned, but there was also a minister within his cabinet that mentioned the need to nuke and throw a nuclear bomb on Gaza. He was suspended, only suspended not uh, terminated from his post. He was only suspended from the cabinet. So th this is the mindset of the leadership that is carrying out the occupation that you have within the cabinet, a person uh, stating that Gaza should be nuked. That is the kind of uh, people that we are opposing. But uh, with regard to the masajid, by the way, we need to abandon quietism. So every Mawlid gathering uh, every peer and sheikh, they invite the local MP to come and talk to their masjid. Why cannot the peers, uh, within, up and down the UK, you have so many of these peers, why can they not now invite the local MP and discuss the situation of Gaza and demand that the MPs speak up in parliament, that the MPs must speak in favour of the protest on Saturday, the MPs must speak against Keir Starmer, the MPs must speak against Rishi Sunak's policies. This is a fard mm -hmm. on all the peers up and down UK, all the Mulvis who have the influence uh, within the Masajid and the committee members, uh, the committee Masajid leaders, all of them should have a unified front and demand action from all MPs, Muslim and non-Muslim, whoever is your local MP, that should be uh, the minimum of what they do. Mm. And then there's that first question, um, is this happening because of the sins of the Ummah, that we've gone away from the deen um, and the fact that we have these trials and tribulations of what's, to happen, what's happening in, in the Middle East, particularly in Gaza and the West Bank? Well, some of those people who are proponents of just this statement, they tend to uh, shift blame solely on the shoulders of Muslims, uh, taking that concept out of context. How out of context that the greatest sin that we do is to abandon our Muslim brothers who are being oppressed. So if we admit and we say, yes, this is a result of our sins, the very first sin is our quietism. The very first sin is being a coward. Being a coward is also a sin. There is a prominent sheikh from 
Cambridge who said that the Palestinians are being punished for taking part in the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Caliphate. So they are being punished now. This is uh, false, actually, because the, the Palestinians were loyal to the Ottomans. David Lloyd George, who was the prime minister at the time, uh, when uh, Palestine was occupied by the British, he states prior to the policies, when they were formulating policies, that we could not communicate with the Palestinians because they were mainly pro-Ottoman. Those who were traitors to the Ottomans were in fact the, the Sharif family in Mecca al-Mukarram al-Sharif uh, uh, al-Hussein, and then his son, Faisal, who became, for a moment, he became king of Syria, only for a while until the French mandate, and then he became king of Iraq. And his brother was a Sharif Abdullah, who became the king of Transjordan, the ancestor of the current Jordanian royal family. So this sheikh from, uh, uh, from Cambridge is giving false information, and based on that, he is giving a, uh, an original sin type of theology, as if uh, the mm. descendants pay for the sins of their ancestors, even though it's false in the case of the Palestinians. Yeah. So the first sin that we do is quietism and being cowards. That is the first sin. And, and do, do you think the second sin is that we have some imams, some influencers, people in the community saying uh, protesting doesn't work, it doesn't matter, uh, we're hoping there is going to be a, a Palestinian solidarity campaign uh, protest and march on Saturday. Um, and they hope that the planners are saying there's going to be over a million people. But there are others who are saying we should stay away from these protests and, and, and not agitate. What would you say? Firstly, the protests are not actually agitation. They are peaceful protests. And I would uh, advise everyone to be careful of agent provocateurs on the day. There will be people implanted within those protests to say chants that uh, can be interpreted as being pro-terrorist. There will be people provoking violence. So when you go on Saturday, be careful of such uh, plants that will be placed in those protests. As for those who criticize the protests, what alternative are they giving? Do they have an alternative? It's always easy to criticize those who are doing something but it's difficult to give a better, effective alternative. What effective alternative do they have to present to the world? So it's easy giving the criticism, but please present the alternative. Yeah, and, and one more question. Uh, we're going to go to our next break, but we'll pick up uh, in a bit more detail around the response of uh, the Muslim countries. But there is a wider issue around uh, election time next year, potential general election, well, definitely a general election, local elections. What do you make of those Muslim members of parliament, Muslim councillors who are wrestling with their conscience about how to speak up on this? So today we must commend uh, one of the MPs, uh, Muslim MPs, uh, who in, spoke up in, in parliament. Uh, Najshar today and uh, Imran Hussein who's resigned, both from Bradford, uh, he resigned yesterday from the uh, shadow front bench. I'm referring to the one who resigned. He must be commended. He must be decorated by the Muslims and non-Muslims, uh, the, the anti-Zionist lobby, uh, meaning we need the formation of an anti-Zionist lobby, which uh, works with Jewish people. You, uh, we must have an anti-Zionist lobby and work with Jewish barristers, QCs, who are anti-Israel, anti-apartheid. We as Muslims, we as various ethnic groups 
must work with Jewish barristers and QCs in order to do that. So we must condemn uh, uh, Zionism and commend those MPs who have been vocal and uh, like the MP who resigned yesterday. Additionally, we must form this anti-Zionist lobby, must form a meeting, uh, formulate me uh, meetings with MPs, local MPs, in order firstly to inform them, because many of them are uninformed. They may have this Bradri-based backing, but it does not entail Bradri, meaning tribal backing yeah. uh, of their ethnic group, but it does not entail that they are informed on geopolitics and history of the formulation of Israel on international law. For instance, in international law, the occupier is never the victim. How is the occupier claiming the right to defend himself okay. and the occupied does not have the right to defend himself. So uh, pressure groups, uh, but what? also groups that inform the local MPs, this needs to be done. Sheikh, I mean, natural progression then onto Muslim countries. Uh, we have Egypt, we have Jordan, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Pakistan, uh, 52 countries in the Organization of Islamic Conference who were meeting today, uh, sorry, who are meeting tomorrow, an emergency meeting in Jeddah, uh, where they're expected to pass a motion of condemnation and asking for an immediate ceasefire. Is that, is that it? Is that all things we were, you know, so they, uh, is that the only thing we're, you know, going to see from this uh, world leaders? Yes, unfortunately, uh, what you will observe from Muslim world leaders is a, a compliancy because many of them are contained in the sense that Egypt's aid budget increased after this 1973 war. So after post-1973, and in uh, when they made, uh, the, uh, they took part in the Oslo Accords and uh, in the Camp David, uh, the, the deals that were made between Israel and uh, Egypt post-1979, aid increased to Egypt. Similarly, in 1994 with Jordan, once Jordan uh, acknowledged Israel, recognized Israel, their aid, international aid increased uh, to Jordan also. So uh, many of these countries, they have trade deals, including Turkey, Erdogan's Turkey. So even though Erdogan may have uh, speeches condemning Israel, in terms of military exercises, Turkey carries out military exercises with Israel. Similarly, uh, you have uh, many ties with, the, of course, uh, the UAE. The UAE has uh, many uh, business deals with uh, Israel and recognizes Israel. So for the time being, we will just observe uh, conferences and talks uh, with Pakistan. We know Pakistan is out of action since Imran Khan uh, has been jailed. So uh, in, uh, the, the conspiracy to imprison Imran Khan uh, meaning the conspiracy of uh, the political elite in Pakistan entails that the Pakistani elite uh, will not speak up, uh, uh, take military action uh, with regard to the current events in Gaza. Um, and then there is the, um, you mentioned Egypt, so just for the record, um, Egypt gets 50 billion pound in US military aid and gets 30 billion pound in uh, economic um, and civilian aid. So it's 80 billion pounds a year that the United States give to Egypt. Yes, yeah, so that means that Egypt will not uh, intervene in, in the current uh, scenario. And similarly, other uh, nation states. You have to remember how nation states work is that when uh, the colonizer leaves, 
when they leave, they leave behind a system, an institute, uh, in order to govern the country how they were governing the country. Uh, and why they did this post-World War II, uh, Western countries, the colonizers, became bankrupt. So there was a opposition to colonizers or colonization within Europe because Europe itself was self-destructing after World War II. They could not sustain colonizing other countries. So it's cheaper for them to implant governments and institutions that do the job for them. And most of these nation states, if not all of them, are post-colonization entities that continue a, a colonization process with just uh, uh, different color skins. So the, it's not the, the old colonizer, it's, it's a post-colonization system. So they are given the flag, the anthem, uh, the banking system, the same economic model, the same social, uh, social justice system, uh, even if the country may have Islamic written within its uh, rupee or Ooh. whatever other paper currency they may have. Um, the, the Egyptian government and also President uh, Sisi and King Abdullah of Jordan have both said that there's a deliberate campaign here on behalf of the Israelis, which they deny, uh, to um, force them into the Sinai. And that's why they're not going to open up Rafah crossing to ordinary Gazans. Yeah, that's, that's a right decision. That's within the... Uh, uh, the within the, uh, the remit of Arab nationalism in the sense that they are still committed to Arab nationalism in the sense that they recognize a Palestinian Arab national state uh, or the two-state solution. So what is posed off as a solution for the problem and is something repeated by all the politicians is a two-state solution pre-1967 borders, which in itself is a scam. Why it's a scam? is because all along, while they have been talking of a two-state solution pre-1967 borders, Israel has been entrenching itself in illegal colonies, illegal settlements, uh, uh, and Donald Trump recognized the Golan Heights officially for Israel when in reality they belong to Syria. Similarly, Jerusalem was declared as the capital of Israel. So while carrot dangling carries on with the two-state solution pre-1967 borders, Israel ca carries out it carries out its uh, genocide of the Palestinian people as we witness now in Gaza, but also displacement of Palestinians from their homes. Um, if you remember the Sheikh Jarrah mm. incident in Jerusalem, when entire Arab uh, neighborhoods are being ethnically cleansed, Arabs are being kicked out of their homes, and uh, the colonizers are taking those ho homes by force. So this is an entire process that they intend to complete and then making the the Palestinian land ethnically into a Jewish state, uh, which is the Zionist project. And, and there is a wider uh, issue in the Middle East where the people uh, themselves are very um, supportive of the Palestinians. I mean, do you, do you see an uprising amongst the people forcing leaders to stand up and do something more practically? Uh, in terms of economic and, and social and diplomatic means? Well, that happened in what they refer to as the Arab Spring, which was in reality the Arab Winter because it had no real direction. So when the Egyptians received their democratic rights in Egypt in Tahrir Square and they voted in Mursi, uh, what we observed afterwards that there was a 
coup d'etat in Egypt and Sisi took power, American back, and that is why Egypt receives its military aid. As you mentioned, 50 billion and 30 billion uh, military and economic uh, aid budgets. So uh, that really sapped the energy of the Middle East in the sense from Tunisia all the way to uh, Syria, we saw uh, uprisings, we saw the masses rising against tyranny because the Arab regimes do have uh, uh, tyrannical regimes that are oppressive in nature, but it it did not have guidance in the sense that they received autonomy or uh, in, instead now what they face in Egypt is autocracy. There is a complete dictatorship in Egypt and the, the, the situation remains the same from Tunisia to Syria. Yeah, and the United Nations describing this as a humanitarian catastrophe is not able to do anything. The bombs are still dropping. People are feeling depressed. They're, they're, they're feeling helpless, as the sister was saying. What else can we do beyond praying, protesting, and giving charity or raising our voice? The first thing we have to realize is that the UN is an in ineffective body. So it's, uh, again, the UN uh, was ineffective when, when it came to the Rohingya, the Myanmar people, 800,000 of them displaced from Burma. And uh, the, uh, the leader of Burma was given the Nobel Peace Prize. So that is the, uh, the, uh, new, the order of the world. So post-World War II, you've had the UN, uh, an ineffective body, a body that gave 55% of Palestine to Israel, meaning uh, when Israel for people, people will continue asking these same questions. What we need to think of is an alternative. What is a better alternative for uh, the Muslims? Is pan-Islamism a better, what they refer to as pan-Islamism, is that a better alternative? That is what people need to think with regard to, is what is a better alternative to the current state of affairs. Yeah. Um, you obviously very authoritative when it comes to Islamic knowledge and Islamic history. What was, why is Al-Aqsa and Palestine so important in the, in the Muslim story? So there is a false uh, propaganda now that uh, Al-Aqsa, for instance, some of them claim is not mentioned in Al-Qur'anul Karim. In fact, in Tel Aviv, there was an Israeli who said this to me, that Al-Aqsa and Jerusalem is not even mentioned in the Qur'an. In fact, they, in, they interpret Al-Aqsa as being what? As being a masjid that was just in Arabia at the time. But what every Israeli should know, every Christian, Jew, and even Muslim should know, is that Al-Aqsa is mentioned in the Qur'an, Jerusalem is referred to in the Qur'an multiple times, not with the name Jerusalem, but Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa is named. Uh -huh. And by agreement of all the Muslims, it's the, the Masjid which is known as Al-Haram Al-Sharif, which is the entire complex, not just the Masjid, not just the Gold Dome, not just the Masjid at the front, which is known as Qibali. It's the entire complex, the Al-Aqsa complex, is the place from where the Prophet ﷺ in Islamic creed ascended to the heavens. So, and it's also the first Qibla of the Muslims. And it's also one of the three holiest masajid in, in Islam. This is basic knowledge which everyone should know. Yeah, basic knowledge that everyone should know. We're, we're going to take a, a very Cal quick break. Uh, Honorable Sheikh, um, there, there is a 
question around uh, John Kirby, who is the spokesman uh, for the U.S. National Security Council. Um, he was speaking in the White House yesterday, and he said uh, he was asked um, around what, what's the top mark of how many civilians uh, would the U.S. government start changing its view. And he said, and I quote, um, he said that U.S. had no red lines of how many civilians Israel was allowed to, uh, to kill. And his response was, yes, that is still the case. So journalists asked him, uh, does the U.S. have no red lines for how many civilian uh, Israel can uh, allow to massacre? And Mr. Kirby said, yeah, that is still the case. Um, and, and, th and then the sort of natural is you've got the British mandate. You are seeing an outpouring of support, uh, ironclad support, from Western politicians uh, for Israel. What do you make of that? So uh, with regard to the comments, uh, we shouldn't have amnesia in terms of our memory. So Madeleine Albright, if you remember, was on record to say yeah. in, uh, with regard to the first sanctions on Iraq uh, after the first Gulf War, whether the sanctions are worth the lives of half a million children. And she said, yes, they are worth the lives of half a million children. She did apologize, so apologize many years later for that. Many years later, after over half a million children had died through American policy, and uh, also it's a nation that dropped uh, nukes upon Hiroshima and Nagasaki, meaning if you look at the historical track record, uh, military foreign policy in South America and throughout the Middle East, uh, even at one point, America, if you check this, you can fact check this, there was a point where they were indecisive whether to drop a nuke on Egypt when Egypt had inter, uh, altercations with Israel in the 1950s. So a strong foreign policy is something the, of the norm for the White House. And of course, if he says otherwise, then he will face a backlash from the strong Zionist uh, lobby within America, APAC, and all the supporters of the uh, Zionist lobby. Similarly, within the British mandate, you had the the statement of Arthur Balfour, which for the large part, the British stuck to the declaration of a Jewish homeland, which uh, was to appease the Zionist lobby. But what is not mentioned is that David Lloyd George, the, uh, the one uh, who was prime minister at the time when the Balfour declaration was made, he even visited Hitler in 1936 and when he visited Hitler in 1936, that was one year after Hitler uh, and his uh, government in Germany had placed anti-Jewish laws, uh, anti-Semitic laws in Germany. And David Lloyd George did not speak up against Hitler. In fact, uh, when he came back, he praised Hitler. And David Lloyd George was the prime minister in Britain at the time when Arthur Balfour declared uh, when he gave his uh, famous Balfour Declaration in 1917 after General Allenby invaded Palestine in November uh, 1917. So David Lloyd George was uh, anti-Semitic. You check his bi uh, biography, he was very anti-Semitic. Why did they have a pro-Israel policy then? This is what we know as NIMBYism. NIMBYism is it's good for others, but it is not good for us. So it was good for the Arabs to have uh, an Israeli state in their backyard, but Britain, Europe, Russia, 
and the United States, they did not want a large presence of uh, Jewish people because in mm. essence, they were anti-Semitic. What proves that point is that after the Holocaust in 1947, a, a, a ship known as the Exodus, this ship was carrying Jewish victims of the German Holocaust. They went to British Palestine, meaning Palestine was under the British mandate. The British turned them away. They went back to France. The French turned them away and sent them back to Germany, to Hamburg, in, in fact. And that was the type of policies they had in the Western Hemisphere, anti-Jewish policies, but pro-Israeli policies. Why pro-Israeli? Because they were carrying out this nimbyism of uh, extraditing all the Jews mm. from Europe and sending them off to Palestine. The policies of the British from 1917 to 1948 are one of the major sources for the current conflict. Then, uh, so, the so current... Just, just on Lord George, you did say 1936, and he, he not only met him, he wrote a very glowing... Uh, column for the uh, Express newspaper when he came back, praising Hitler and all that he was achieving. Exactly, and uh, Israel was founded, uh, well, declared formally by Arthur Balfour when David Lloyd George was prime minister. So he was an anti-Semitic prime minister, uh, but Zionist. And this is why many Jews, uh, the majority of Jews, were against Zionism in the early 1900s. In fact, there were British cabinet members who opposed Zionism, even though there were others who were like Herbert Samuel, who was pro-Zionism. But there were others who were against Zionism because they saw Zionism as a cause of anti-Semitism. And that is something to take into mind. Those who say being anti-Zionism and they equate that with being anti-Semitic, they have no knowledge of the history of Zionism and they have no history of, uh, they have no knowledge of the history of Palestine. Yeah. And do you think when we look at these uh, historical facts and you talk to a lot of young people, as I've done over this past few weeks, traveling the country and speaking at many protests, and I, I get a sense that people are not aware of this history. They're just there because they want to protest for Palestine. But when you tell them, are we missing a trick about educating our youngsters and ourselves about this history that you saw outlined tonight? Yes, so if you observe Zionist youth, they are vociferous, uh, and they, Zionism itself, it gives a slant to history. So they project a false history with regard to the Jewish people, Zionism, but they are still informed with regard to their philosophy. We as Muslims must be well informed with regard to Palestine and how we, how we frame the Palestinian issue. The Palestinian issue should not be framed as a nationalistic struggle. It should be framed as an Islamic struggle because the land of Palestine was ruled by the Khilafah for 1300 years up to the point of Sultan Abdul Hamid. Therefore, we see it as the capital of the future caliphate because the hadith of the Prophet mentions Jerusalem as one of the final capitals of the caliphate. Five cities are mentioned. The fifth and final city is the city of Jerusalem. So it has a religious significance for us as Muslims. And this is why we must instruct our youth with regard to the history of Palestine and Jerusalem specifically. And obviously, you, we talked about the earlier 
um, the illegal settlements. We've seen what's happening in occupied East Jerusalem. You've been there. What is the feeling amongst the people there? Um, because for them, th this is a struggle they've had for generation upon generation, and they've not, never seen any solution. And many Zionist Christians and members of the uh, Israeli government supporters have said that the Bible says Jerusalem is the internal capital of Israel. Well, that's the internal contradiction of Zionism, an entity that claims to be secular, but then gives citations from the Bible. So they need to make up their choice. We as Muslims are very clear. We speak from the Quran. We speak from the Sunnah. Our politics is based upon the Quran and Sunnah. We are very clear on that. But the Zionist uh, entity, in its early formulation, under Wiseman and other leaders, they claim to be secular in nature. So they cannot give citations from the Bible. But if they want to give citations from the Bible, then Muslim theologians are equipped to respond to those selective citations that they give uh, from the Bible, including Christians, because that is not actually based upon the theology of Jesus. If you look at the New Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament, he uh, does not uh, give the same uh, views with regard to Jewish occupation of Palestine, for instance. But when addressing Jews, we look at the Torah, that is selective citation that they are giving. So, but Muslim ulama need to be uh, equipped in responding to these theological claims to the land of is uh, to the land of Palestine, which they refer to as Israel. Our people uh, often, uh, you know, are scared about should they go to Masjid al-Aqsa, should they go to Jerusalem. Uh, what's your message to our viewers about why it's so important that we make that trip? I don't believe a true Muslim would be scared, meaning what reason should a Muslim be scared? Coward, being a coward is against the essence of our Iman. We as Muslims should take the advice of the Prophet ﷺ, who exhorted people that if you can go to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa and pray two raka'atayn, uh, two cycles of prayer, go and pray and send oil to upkeep its lamps. That means that we are all responsible for the upkeeping of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. And that should be every Muslim's goal, that they should go to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. And we pray that soon all of us go to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa when it is under Muslim Arab rule. <coughs> okay, um, just a couple of minutes before we go to our break, and the question is coming again around the protest. Are, are you clear that you're encouraging people to go on these protests? I am very clear that I am not anti-protests. The protests do have an effect. To deny that they have an effect is a denial of something obvious, that if they did not have an effect, then why would the chief of police be pressured to ban the event? And similarly, it's an armistice day, which was the silencing of the guns and the cannons, which means the end of war. People wear poppies to signify the end of war and to mourn the dead. So, uh, the, uh, and many xenophobes, many bigots in Britain should know that people like myself and yourself have ancestors who fought in the British army. Yeah. We have ancestors, my grandfather, your grandfather were in the army, in the British army. They were stationed in these places. So when the British were ruling 
Palestine in 1917. By 1947, they had 100,000 troops in Palestine. Okay. Where were those 100,000 troops coming from? They were coming from India, from what is today known as Pakistan. India, Bangladesh. Azad, we're just going to take a very uh, final break. Sorry, I don't know, she... just a developing story that's just broke in the last few moments. Israel has carried out an aerial strike uh, attacking military sites in southern Syria, uh, according to the Syrian news agency Sana in the last few moments. Uh, they say the attack has caused some material loss. Do you think the war is going to escalate? Do you think it's going to escalate to Lebanon, to Syria, uh, other parts of the world? And what will the consequences be all on that? Well... I do not think Bashar al-Assad has the acumen to deal with this problem because as we speak, he is carrying out attacks in Idlib. So there, Idlib is uh, surrounded by Syrian forces and the people in Idlib are Muslims. So if Bashar had an acumen of politics, he would make some kind of concessions uh, with the Muslim population that he has. As for uh, Israel striking southern Syria, that is in order to have some type of reaction to their strikes in order to validate any further deep military penetration of Syria from the Golan Heights. Golan Heights is not too far from Damascus. Uh, they have a military uh, superiority, meaning is the IOF, the occupation forces, they have a military uh, strategy to enter mainland Syria from the Golan Heights because it overlooks uh, into the direction of Damascus. Uh, escalation, yes, because we have actual psychopaths ruling the world today. If Joe Biden doesn't call for a ceasefire, the prime minister doesn't call for a ceasefire, uh, the Muslim rulers do not call for a ceasefire, you have ministers within the Israeli cabinet calling for uh, nuclear strikes on Gaza, a, a densely populated concentration camp full of civilians, and then these psychopathic people are, are totally unpredictable. Uh, I do not have any prescient predictions, but I can say that there will be an escalation. However, have you noticed the Ukraine war is not so important anymore? Which is interesting because when we have the COVID-19 lockdowns, during the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, everything was COVID-19. As soon as the Ukraine war starts, COVID finished and the lockdowns finished. Now we have a similar pattern that the Ukraine war was the big news, but now uh, uh, Ukraine is complaining that the war is not as important. And in fact, the, the US and the UK now are speaking to the Ukrainian leader. Uh, we do not know what will uh, come about of that, but the importance given to Ukraine has cut down, and uh, the focus is totally on the child, the baby of the United States, which is uh, the state of Israel. I mean, you said that we need to be brave, but people are feeling tired. We've had four weeks of relentless bombing. I, as I said, I've been to Gaza twice, I've met people there. Um, people are just devastated. I mean, is there any hope? Is there going to be light at the end of the tunnel? There is always hope. Uh, the, the, every nation has suffered worse uh, even than what's happening in Gaza, meaning there have been historical events when nations have recovered from a major injury, when nations have recovered uh, from uh, major uh, killings and genocide. And we as an Ummah 
are resilient. But who is more resilient within the Ummah is the Palestinian people. Uh, and Israel will learn that. The occupation forces will learn how resilient the Palestinians actually are. So there is hope, and people should not watch the videos of young children dying. They should not forward those videos. Why? If you are watching a vul and you are unable to stop the vul, then you are not permitted to look at the vul. So stop watching the videos where children are dying, where, uh, of course, it creates awareness. I understand that. But if you are if you are already aware and you are forwarding those type of videos uh, and you are unable to do something and it leads to being hopeless, then it wouldn't be permitted in the Sharia to forward such type of videos. Um, and there is a rise of Islamophobia in this country as well as anti-Semitism over the last uh, four weeks. Uh, do you think uh, the government and politicians and policymakers need to do more to tackle the rise in hatred uh, for both communities? I believe the politicians are using uh, strong rhetoric in order to curb freedom of speech. They are misusing Islamophobia or anti-Semitism in order to curb freedom of speech. Uh, in fact, uh, if anything causes anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, it's placing more limitations on freedom of speech. It's banning protests. It's banning our freedoms within this country and in the entire Western Hemisphere. So politicians doing less is better. Doing less is better. In fact, I live in Birmingham, which has a huge Jewish community. There is no anti-Semitism amongst Muslims. Muslims are aware that there is a clear distinction between those who advocate anti-Semitism uh, and those who are Zionists. There is a clear distinction. Uh, Jews are our friends in terms of being against Israel. But there are people who are Zionists who could be Christians, who could be Muslims. You have Muslims who are Zionists, and you have Jews who are Zionists. But the Jewish community is not a threat to the Muslim community, and neither is the Muslim community a threat to the Jewish community. We can have exchange, and we can have dialogue, uh, and we can uh, live and integrate. Uh, together, live together. There's no problem with that. So I believe this is being exaggerated on the media. I mean, what is the solution to what is happening, the continued oppression of Muslims, particularly in Gaza and the West Bank? What's the solution in your eyes? If there is no intervention from nation states, then there is uh, no military solution. If you mean a military solution, it would be intervention from nation states. The, uh, where we stand today, there needs to be a military intervention from a nation state, or at least the opening of borders. Uh, opening, opening of the borders entails not removal of the Palestinian people from Gaza into Egypt. It entails allowing the aid workers to enter from the Rafah crossing into Gaza. Similarly, opening up the Jordanian border for them to enter uh, for Muslims to enter from Jordan, Palestinians to enter into the West Bank. And Turkey needs to give up its uh, rhetoric, meaning Erdogan needs to give up rhetoric. He needs to do uh, ac action, meaning on the ground, instead of, uh, because if you look at the policies of Turkey, like permitting uh, oil uh, containers full of uh, millions of gallons of oil entering uh, Turkey, meaning fr uh, from, not uh, from Azerbaijan, entering into Turkey and then going into the ports of Israel. 
this is not this is inaction so we need less rhetoric and more action from nation states surrounding uh, palestine um, I want to finish, the t we've probably got about five minutes left, and I just wanted to focus on you, sir, if I may. One, um, you're obviously a very prominent debater, you've written a number of books. Where are we, your latest book, tell us about that. The latest book is Intellectual Intifada. This book is uh, available uh, on the net on Amazon.co.uk. You have Intellectual Intifada, you have it on Madani Bookstore, Preston. If you write Madani Bookstore, Preston, you will find the book. Uh, intellectual Intifada, it has the title Intifada, and the title was given to the book previous to the current conflict. So the book was finished in around January, earlier on in the year. The premise of the book is to reframe our politics, to change how we view the world. So as long as we rely on institutions that keep up the status quo, that maintain the status quo, we will always be prisoners of our minds. But when we have an intellectual intifada, we wake up and we have a reframing of the situation on the ground. We have a restructure, a paradigm shift of how we view the world. That is referred to as an intellectual intifada. That is what the book is about. So uh, I recommend uh, people to read into that book, inshallah. Uh, and what, what's next? Uh, what other sort of activities are you involved in? Uh, many uh, theological activities. I have uh, upcoming uh, books uh, on uh, Nahmir, which is an Arabic grammar reprint of that. Sarf Baha'i, which is in morphology, Arabic morphology, that's going to print. Uh, and there are two books coming out on theology. So uh, updated, meaning for the modern yeah. mind in terms of not the outdated discussions, updating them to, to the 21st century. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really honored that we were able to give us so much time. I know you're very busy, so thank you so much tonight, Sheikh Asar Rashid. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah.